Welcome back to the Curious Clinicians and Medical Podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper, and I'm joined by my friends and co-hosts, Hannah Abrams and Tony Brew. It's good to see you both. Hey, guys. Good to see you, Avi. All right. Well, today we're going to discuss the intersection of infectious diseases and cancer. More specifically, we're going to look at the use of BCG, an attenuated form of mycobacterium bovis, to treat a totally unrelated malignancy, bladder cancer. So, Tony, eventually... We'll have to talk about how someone decided, you know what, let's give this person an attenuated infection as part of their chemotherapy to treat this tumor, which is just kind of mind boggling. So, But before that, we should talk about some basics such as what is BCG? Yeah, I think that is a good place to start. So uh, so BCG stands for uh, Bacillus calmegorin. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that's what I'm going to go with. Um, and as you mentioned, Avi, it's a live attenuated form of Mycobacterium bovis. Uh, and M. bovis is one of the many, many types of Mycobacterium that can cause the kind of syndrome of tuberculosis. And BCG, as a treatment for cancer, is most commonly used for bladder cancer. And the way that's done is is via intravesicular therapy, where they basically instill it right into the bladder and then let it do its work right at the tumor on the bladder uh, wall. So I assume it must because we give it, but <laughs> does this actually work for bladder cancer? Right. So eventually we'll figure out like how did someone decide to even try it in the first <laughs> place. But yeah, I, I, hopefully it works because we're doing it. And there's pretty good evidence-based support for this. Uh, so, for example, meta-analyses have shown reductions in tumor recurrence when you compare BCG with controls. And then if you also compare BCG, BCG to active therapy like mitomycin C, there's reduce or, or reductions in tumor recurrence. And where I work, I see a ton of patients who received BCG therapy for their bladder cancer. And I've also seen patients who've had disseminated BCG, you know, basically disseminated embovis. And I think that helps to make the point that this is actually a live attenuated bacteria, that if it gets outside of the the bladder wall, can lead to disseminated disease. Fortunately, that's very rare, but it can happen. Wow, that is pretty scary. But okay, so BCG probably works for bladder cancer, but maybe let's go back for a second. Uh, who decided and how uh, to put this live attenuated mycobacterium into someone's bladder? To, to treat cancer. How did that start? Yeah, so we could go back uh, probably a, fa- a thousand years for this episode, but it probably makes more sense to start a little bit later uh, in 1813. So that year, our sane Hippolyte Vautier, he reported that patients who were suffering from gas gangrene experienced a decrease in the size of their malignant tumors. So if they had a, a malignant tumor in a particular site and then they had an, a gas gangrene infection sort of nearby, the tumor shrunk. And at the time, an explanation wasn't obvious, partly because Vautier and, the, and other people at the time didn't know what the causative bacterium for gas gangrene was. And then decades later, William Coley heard about a curious case of a man with an inoperable sarcoma, and his sarcoma disappeared after erysipelas developed nearby. And the remission in this case was durable out to at least seven years. And so Coley heard about this case, and he wondered whether the intentional injection of strep pyogenes might do the same thing. 
1893, he reported tumor regression in several patients with this therapy, basically giving patients strep pyogenes. And he, you know, he was so confident in these results that the first conclusion of the paper reads, uh, and I'll quote, the curative effect of erysipelas on malignant tumors is an established fact, end quote. I mean, you talk about confidence. This concoction of like, you know, bacterial particles, and there were other forms of it. This came to be known as Coley's toxins, and it was used for decades as a treatment for cancer. But it's it's wild to kind of think that injecting strep, strep pyogenes after seeing a couple of cases that it might have helped, like which might have been a coincidence, um, was then like just adopted as like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And obviously the times have changed, but even after Kali's kind of initial success with, with these injections, that's still a long way from using BCG to treat bladder cancer. So how do you how did we get there? Yeah, so let's get a little bit closer. And and I think the next big kind of event that gets us to BCG and bladder cancer was in uh, 1929. So that year, Raymond Pearl reported um, another curious finding. And he uh, did this autopsy study. And in it, he found a lower frequency of cancer in those who had evidence of prior tuberculosis infection. And, you know, I really have to acknowledge in bringing this paper up that it later had to be retracted because others noted that the methods suffered from bias. But, it, you know, for the purposes of this story, it kind of doesn't matter that it was later rejected because at the time it, it spurred so much interest in the idea of mycobacteria potentially being treatments for cancer that people decided to explore that further. Like with Mycobacterium bovis? That, exactly right. So so based on Pearl's findings and the reports of others around that same time, they said, okay, you know, probably we don't want to intentionally infect patients with Mycobacterium tuberculosis, but we have at our disposal this attenuated form of Mycobacterium bovis known as BCG. So people said, all right, let's try this out and let's see if this has the same effect as appears to have happened when people uh, get TB on their own. So first, BCG was tested in animal studies. Um, one study by Old et al. found that BCG-infected mice had an increased resistance to tumors. Particularly in one experiment, the 48-day mortality was 0% in the BCG-infected mice and 92% in the uninfected controls. So I would say a pretty dramatic difference. And you know, when I read about this, I was I was shocked actually because the first trial of BCG in humans wasn't for bladder cancer. Instead, it was for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So 30 patients with ALL in remission after chemo were treated with BCG. And the relapse rates were 63% in the BCG-treated group versus 100% in the controls. So again, showing you know there was benefit to this therapy, and yet wasn't even bladder cancer. Yeah. So it sounds like there isn't necessarily anything special about bladder cancer and its susceptibility to whatever BCG is doing. Um, is that right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So many, many tumor types respond to BCG. And so melanoma, I'll offer, is just another of, of these many examples. But bladder cancer kind of emerged as the perfect option for the therapy because injecting the attenuated bacterium into the bladder kind of allowed for this controlled access to the tumor. I mean, it was just this bag, the bladder. 
And you could sort of keep that therapy right there and allow it to do its work. And the promise of BCG therapy in bladder cancer became a lot more clear with the results of a small trial published in 1976. So the investigators for this trial treated nine patients with recurrent non-muscle invasive bladder cancer with BCG, and they found a 12-fold reduction in recurrence. And in subsequent years, BCG has been compared head-to-head with chemotherapy, things like doxorubicin and Proof Superior. And as I noted, we you know we have enough studies that we can do meta-analyses and show that it really does work. And for some forms of bladder cancer, it's first-line therapy. Wow. So it works. Uh, but how does it work? What What's kind of, what, what goes on here? <laughs> right. Just got to be doing something, right? Um, <laughs> so, you know, to put it as simply as I can, BCG is a form of immunotherapy. So studies have shown that BCG activates nearly all aspects of the immune system. So it activates the innate immune system. It activates the adaptive immune system. And, you know, I, at least for me, I often equate the immune system with our fight against infectious diseases. But it also has a, like a really important role in tumor recognition and rejection. Yeah, I mean this this is like incredible to me because what we now have come around to doing for like for example ALL is not that dissimilar to this. Like there's a group of people who get chemotherapy and then get CAR T cells in order in a much more specific way to activate their immune system against the tumor or, or right. sort of against the cancer. I mean it's like it, it's it's kind of incredible that this was able to be recognized so early on. And then, you know, I think we also see this as like the emergence of checkpoint inhibitors, PD- PD-1 inhibitors, and even maybe on a, on a level that precedes the most recent kind of revolutionary re- revolution in immunotherapy for cancers, we have known for a long time that people who are immunosuppressed for whatever reason are more likely to have squamous cell carcinomas um, in a variety of cancers. So it's, I mean... Yeah, this is this is like incredible to me that what is now a revolutionary therapy set of therapies and, and a revolution in, in oncology, we've kind of understood on some level for a while. And you can draw a straight line back to Kali's toxins too. I mean, that's immunotherapy. That's yeah. what he was doing, right? I mean, I guess it turns out too that like uh, hundreds of millions of years of preparation to you know to like of evolution to destroy invading organisms. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, harnesses a lot of power to kill to kill stuff like cancer. Tocilizumab has no match. <laughs> <laughs> well, that you, that's the thing is like, you know, I feel like, oh, you know, in my career, I've seen the emergence of immunotherapy. But the reality is just as you said, Avi, this has been around for centuries in some form or another. We're, we've learned to harness it in, in, in a far better way. But this isn't new. You know, this stuff goes back to, to Coley's toxins and in, in, in many ways even further back. And, you know, whether it's streptopyogenes or BCG, you know, the idea that the immune response to pathogens might cross-react with malignant cells isn't particularly surprising. And I'll say that there are many other bacteria that have been used as immunotherapy. So salmonella has been used, you know, clostridium, if you think back to that case from the early 1800s of the patient who had Clostridium perfringes infection, who had gas gangrene, that's been used as uh, an immunotherapy. There's really almost no bacteria that hasn't been probably tried in some fashion for this. But if BCG can activate the immune system against cancer, what about its effects on other infections? Yeah, so BCG can can actually activate the immune system 
as you just alluded to, not just um, target cancers, but also infections. And and so this gets to the this other mechanism of benefit, and it's something called trained immunity. And this is something I hadn't heard about until I read up on BCG. And you know, trained immunity is the idea that the innate immune cells, so for example, macrophages, are trained by one infection or a vaccine. And this training will lead to a response that's heightened to a second unrelated infection. Right? So I, I give someone BCG, and then they're later exposed to a different infection, and they have a heightened response to that second infection. This is the idea of trained immunity. And there's data that BCG vaccination protects not only against TB, you know, which is often the intended uh, outcome, but also unrelated infections like yellow fever, malaria, and I'm going to say this very carefully, even COVID. But please don't take BCG as your treatment or <laughs> uh, prevention of COVID. Just get vaccinated. And I'll say, you know, even um, more recently, there's this randomized control trial that reported a decrease in new infections after BCG vaccinations. This is, again, a randomized trial. And this is particularly true for respiratory infections. So I'll tell you, I've really come to appreciate the power of BCG as a, like, you know, let's train the immune system against cancers, let's train it against infections. It's it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, I had never realized it was like so much more widespread than bladder cancers. Yeah, I had I had neither. I mean, when I first learned that it was used for bladder cancers, I was like, okay, well, fine, and I moved on. And then only a little bit later that I say, wait a minute, I like what the heck is going on? <laughs> when I, when when I think I came to the realization that it was the acronym actually stood for the same thing as the the vaccine against tuberculosis. I I, I was like, wait a minute, how, how what's going on there? And you and never then, know you with know, cancer or with chemotherapy exactly. acronyms too. It could have been something else entirely. And I, I have to imagine that at first I, I thought that. And then I I heard, um, you know, Price Kerfoot, who is a urologist um, at the hospital where I work, he mentioned in one of the case conferences the, the this, you know, story of the emergence of uh, you know, BCG is in a form of immunotherapy, and I was just absolutely captivated by it, and that, that's why I decided to read about this independently. It's, it's an incredible story. Amazing. Okay, Tony, do you have take-home points for us? Uh, I sure do. Uh, so for centuries, really, uh, bacteria have been observed to reduce tumor sizes, not just uh, Mycobacterium bovis, but other bacteria. And these observations led to trials of BCG for cancer, and I think most importantly for contemporary medicine and bladder cancer. And in terms of mechanism, BCG acts as a form of immunotherapy, and it leads to immune cell destruction of cancer cells, and it clearly works. There's really great randomized data showing the benefit of, of this therapy in patients with bladder cancer. Who would have guessed it? Not me. Amazing, Tony. Thank you again. So that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at curiousclinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to the episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.